Let's begin with a word of prayer. But before we do that, everybody have an outline? Raise your hand if you need one. Billy has some in the back. One congregation, one Billy taken care of. (laughs) Well done. Uh, Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank You for this rain and thank You for the power. Thank You for the power that makes it so. We are, every time we see rain, hear thunder. Father, see the clouds and the darkening of the sky. We are reminded of the, the great, great might, almightiness, power, power, more power than thunder, more power than lightning that You possess, Father. And all of that strength is focused in love upon Your creation and upon Your people. And we are the recipients, Father, of this great gift. Thank You for the revelation of Your character Thank You, Father, for the revelation of Your will and Your Word and Your nature through Scripture to us in order for us to see the things that happen around us in such a way that we are not fearful but give You praise and give You glory for You are great to us. Thank You, Father, for Your protection and Your your, uh, providence. Thank You for Your care. Thank You for Your Word. And thank You tonight for these that have come forward in, in this weather to, to worship You and, and to pray and to praise and to adore You in all that we do, Father. Thank You for this time and we ask You to give us ears that hear and eyes that see this text that Russ has read for us tonight. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everyone said. Tonight is going to be uh, our uh, last message in the practical section of Romans. Now, next Sunday morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at that 16th chapter and try to tie everything together in the study of of Romans with what it is that Paul is writing to the church at the very end of this letter after all of the things that he has said about the greatness of the Gospel, the greatness of the church, and the greatness of God. So, in summary, as we get into the message tonight, you'll remember that chapters 1 through 11 teach how God overcomes the very human problem of sin. That is a problem that every human shares. We have the problem of sin that has to be dealt with, and it has to be dealt with someone besides us because we do not have the power. We do not have the capability or the wisdom or the might to be able to overcome that. And where sin separated us from God and separated us from each other, I mean, sin has not only built a wall between God and us, but it also builds walls between people. And sometimes that, that wall is, is manifesting or demonstrating itself in meanness or, or, or racism or prejudices or, or dishonesty or in, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, dishonesty and these kinds of things. But that, that has separated us from each other and the gospel is what has reversed the effects of that sin, which is no easy thing to accomplish. It took the life of Christ. And now, because of that, we have peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified through faith, we have what, church? Peace, right? With God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we come to chapters 12 through 15, which teach how that peace that we have with God changes everything, and especially changes everything in the relationship that the sons of God have with each other. That vertical peace that we have with God breeds a horizontal peace, a horizontal reconciliation, a, a, a restoration of relationships between the sons of God and, and with each other. Now, 
what we have to do, what we have to realize in all of that is that that peace is not something that just comes because we hope it to be so. That peace comes because we work for it. We work at it. We work to make it so. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. If it is possible as far as it what depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So it's peace with God and it's peace with everyone. But you know that sometimes peace with God is a lot easier than peace with each other. Living at peace is not always an easy thing to do. So Paul has to get very, very practical here in terms of how that gets worked out on a daily basis. He begins in chapter 12, the beginning of that practical section, by saying that disciples are always to think of themselves as living sacrifices. These are the kinds of sacrifices which were the kind that were consumed in dedication and thanksgiving to God. And there is something about the life of a disciple, the life of a Christian, that is like those sacrifices. He says you are a living sacrifice, which has a very practical application in differing political views. That's chapter 13. You know, there are Gentiles who think that the Roman Empire is pretty great. There are Jews who are just now getting back to Rome after being ousted by Claudius, who are, you know, their lives have been uh, disrupted. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of lives that have been sort of wrecked because they had to get up and leave everything that they had established in Rome. Now they're getting to come back. Their view of Rome is a lot different than the Gentile Christians. Those that are pro-Rome and those that are a little iffy about Rome are going to have some struggles with each other. And then what happens when you have two mature Christians who are strong in their faith and are very committed to Christ, but they have differing views on things that are not a thus saith the Lord, but are more of an opinion than anything else. It's a kosher versus a non-kosher lifestyle. It's a can-do-it versus a can't-do-it type of situation. Well, what Paul says in that particular instance is that you don't allow the work of the Gospel to be destroyed by things that are really disputable matters. And so what he's going to deal with tonight is sort of an offshoot of that. Tonight, in chapter 15, Paul is going to address another very common occurrence that can cause a subtle and sometimes very imperceptible separation between brothers and sisters in the body. Now, let's illustration on how this works. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, there is one of the oddest museums that you will ever hear about. It's a fascinating museum. It is the Museum of Failed Products. It's a museum that, as you look at it, it's set up like a supermarket. Only the shelves are filled with products that did not make it into the hearts of consumers. Here are a couple of examples. Number one, the egg cuber. That's making a round egg or an oval egg into a square. Uh, Another one was aerosol toothpaste. I mean, some of these products are so bad, only a mom could love it. One of the worst ones was the uh, the Jello for salads. Now you probably can't see it up here on the slide, but the flavors for those Jellos for salads are up there on top: seasoned tomato. You have down on the bottom left. You have celery flavored Jello. Did not make it. Nobody wanted uh, <laughs> celery flavored Jello. And then over there on the right bottom, you have mixed vegetable flavored Jello. And then finally, you have List- Lester Fixins. Bacon soda. Uh, you know, that's just so close, so close to glory right there, but not, not quite where it needs to be. Now, again, these are just a few 
failures that stocked the shelves of the Museum of Failed Products up in Ann Arbor. Now, given the ubiquitous nature of failure, if the museum had a central message, it would be this. Failure is not a rarity, but the norm. Failure is not a rarity, but the norm. That's also true of human beings, is it not? I mean, when you think about your own life, don't even think about anyone else. Just think about your own life. There are failings after failings after failings. Things that you wish you would have done. Things that you wish you would have said. That you would have given. That that you would not have done. Life is full of failures. And there is a a lot of failures that happen between trying to learn how to ride a bike and spell a word correctly or follow the first time recipe for a gourmet dish. And human beings are going to fail in every area. And sometimes they will fail a lot. And especially when they're trying to grow up in the faith. This is what's happening in the church. New Christians are learning a new value system that from time to time they're not going to live up to all the time. They're going to be trying to break old destructive habits. They're going to be adopting new ways to live. From time to time they're going to fall short. Like all of us, we certainly know more than we're able to do, right? But humans are not products to be tossed into the trash can or shelved in a museum dedicated to failure. That, and again, it's, it's the point of chapters 1 through 11, that is why there is the gospel good news. Humans are precious to God, even in their most rebellious state, so precious that He is willing for His Son to be the sacrifice of atonement. In God's eyes, humans are worth salvaging. Now, the kingdom of God is going to be a lot different from the world of Darwin. In Darwin, it's the strong eating the weak. In the kingdom of God, Paul says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, about 30 years ago, I heard a sermon that was based on two texts out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 42. And it was a sermon that really impacted my image of, of, of the Lord. And uh, the, the first passage was Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11, where Isaiah says, the sovereign Lord comes with what? He comes with what? Power, right? The sovereign Lord is powerful. He rules with a mighty arm. He's got strength. But then in verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Now, what Isaiah is describing is a Lord who is strong and is powerful. And those two words conjure up creation. That God with His Word is able, He's powerful, He's strong. That He's able to create out of nothing everything that we know, everything that is tangible. But that God, that Lord, with that power and with that strength, He does not run roughshod over those who are weak. And who are the weak, according to Isaiah? It's the lambs that He carries in His arms. How I mean, That is very counterintuitive, is it not? When you think about even our, our American culture, we want to be with the Turks. We want to be with the, the young speedsters. We want to be with the ones that are out there on the front, out there they're showing strength, the ones that are out there on the edge. The Lord, though, as He is described by Isaiah, is the one that is taking the lambs, the little ones, the ones that can't keep up, the ones who have not grown into their strength. Those are the ones that He is carrying into His arms. He is gently leading those mama uh, sheep that have the young. And then probably an even more telling passage is Isaiah 42. This is the second passage from that sermon where Isaiah says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now in this 
text, and this is the main text that, that, uh, out of that sermon, there are two powerful images in the ancient world. The reed was something that everyone had. They walked around with one. You used it to, 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 uh, to, to, uh, to tap sheep and to tap children to get them to go in the right direction. The, the staff was something, the, the reed was something that was used all over the place. And what Isaiah is saying is that when it comes to the Lord who has that mighty arm and has all of that power, that like a shepherd leads those sheep, when it comes to a bruised reed, a reed that normally everyone would put their weight down on, that they would use for work, that they would, they would use because of the strength of it, the integrity of its strength. But this one is bruised. This one, if you put your weight down onto it, it's going to break. This one will not put... He will not break that bruised reed. He will not put all of his weight down on something that can't support it. People who are bruised and people who are wounded like that reed will not be broken by the Lord. And then he goes to a second image, and that of a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now lamps, as you know, everywhere in the ancient world. It was, it was how you, you saw in the darkness. It's how you got around outside your house in the dark when there are no street lights. It's how you got around inside of your house in the middle of the night to take care of children. And from time to time, uh, wicks would, would get to a, a situation with the oil and the length of the wick where they would begin to smolder. And there's that smoke that begins to fill the house. And it's irritating. And all you want to do is to get it outside of the house or you know, just, just you know, take your fingers and wet them and, and put that wick out. But this smoldering wick of a person, he does not snuff out. He doesn't kill it. But he gently adds the oil and he gently blows on the wick until he brings it back up to a flame. Brings it back up to the strength of its flame. Now that is the image of the Messiah that is coming. And that is the image of the Messiah that we are told by Paul in Romans chapter 8 that we are to conform to the image of. That this is the one that we imitate. That when it comes to the weak, we carry them in our arms. When it comes to a bruised reed, we don't put our weight down on it and break that reed. We don't use it that way. That smoldering wick, that irritating person, that person that is, is just not quite who they need to be, we don't snuff their life out. And so what he describes in chapter 15 is a ministry of the strong, that is the mature to the weak. And there are two things he says. First, you bear with the failings of that, of that weak person. People are going to fail, and they're going to fail miserably, and sometimes they're going to fail painfully. And people's lives get messy. And the temptation when people's lives get messy, and when they mess up their lives, is to look down on them, or to move away from them. That is, to not get involved with them because they're like, you, know, you don't want to be tainted with the greediness of their life. Or to move on ahead, and that is, to leave them behind. But that is not the way of the kingdom of God. He says in Romans chapter 15, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Circle that word bear in your Bibles. It means to carry that person if necessary. Think of the image of the Lord carrying the young in His arms. When you stand with the weak and the struggling, you are imitating the one who literally bore, that is, carried our weaknesses and our infirmities for our good to the cross. And sometimes bearing with people and bearing up people takes time and it takes patience. And so one of the things that I pray about in terms of our fellowship with one another is that Mac should be a place where people are given time and resources to get it. To understand what it means to be a disciple. 
that they are surrounded by people who are not only praying with them and are patient with them, but have the resources that they can, that they can use to enable them to, to grow into the image of Jesus, to grow into a disciple, to grow into maturity, to grow into the strength of faith. And with that goal in mind, with everyone in conformity to the image of Christ, to that end, we are about building people. I, I believe it to be, be true with all of my heart, and this is not a line that is original with me, but I believe that if we build people, God will build His church. That that's what we're about. In Romans 15, verses 1 and 2, he says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good. What are those last four words? Say them with me. To build them up. The church is not a place where people are shelved when they mess up, but a place where they are nurtured to the place where they blossom. And that doesn't happen if if people are only out for themselves. It is a weak point in any church when Christians do not feel any profound obligation to others, but only do what they want to do and only do what, what, uh, what they're comfortable with. This kind of ministry of building people up does get messy, and at times it does get gritty, but there are some payoffs. The first payoff is that God gets glorified in some, some magnificent ways. In, in verses 5 and 6, Paul says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As, as people begin to conform more and more to the likeness of Christ, that is, they grow up into the likeness of Jesus, they begin to walk as Jesus walked. They begin to, to, to see and value things the way that Jesus sees and values things. They, they live a life that when people see it, they begin to recognize Jesus Himself. As people conform more and more to the likeness of Christ and develop the same attitude towards each other that is the mind of Christ, then unity in the church begins to flourish. The, the body begins to function and people are, are, are growing up. And God is glorified. There is a glory that comes to God when people's lives begin to line up with His will. And it's not the strong eating the weak. It's the strong making sacrifices for the weak. It's the strong building up the weak. It's the strong blessing the weak. And the church becomes a place of abounding love. And not only is God glorified, but God is praised. In verse 7, accept one another. There's that word again. Then just as Christ accepted you, uh, then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Acceptance is again mentioned here. It is, as it meant earlier, about bringing people into your inner circle. When you accept somebody, it's not that you're just tolerating them, but you're bringing them into the warm embrace. It's, it's bringing them into your inner circle. It's bringing them into your home and to your table. It's bringing them into your huddle. It's about experiencing something super unique in the world. It's about bringing a unique experience of love into the world. And when people see that, they begin to praise God. When people see changed lives and they see people coming together and they see things that they've never seen before in the interactions between different kinds of people in different races and different socioeconomic backgrounds and different educations and, and, and different ethnic backgrounds and all of these things, when they see that kind of unique love being manifested in a group of people like that, they begin to praise God. And then the last thing is the gospel is perpetuated and propagated. The gospel is perpetuated and propagated. 
In Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, he says, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. Jews on behalf of God's truth. Circle that word truth. So that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So you have uh, something very subtle happening here that's not to be missed. He's been talking about the strong and the weak, the, the, the strong and the mature in their relationship with the weak, those that are still growing up into maturity and those that are, are still moving towards conformity to the image of Jesus. But he switches here from the weak and the strong to the Jew and the Gentile. Question, what is the connection then between the Jews and the truth and the Gentiles and the mercy? What is the connection? Why, why move from the strong and the weak to the Jews and the Gentiles and the, and the truth and the mercy? The answer is the promise of God to the patriarchs. The truthfulness of God's Word where the whole world, Jew and Gentile, are blessed is uh, because God is merciful. It is whenever people see the Jews and the Gentiles and people from every kind of different background, strong and weak, coming together, and that kind of unique love, that kind of unity, that kind of fellowship, those resources being, 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 being uh, 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 spent out on people's lives. When, when, when people are being brought together like that, where they can be described as a body, that kind of unity, and that body is healthy, where the body is functioning and doing what it should be doing in the ministry of Christ, then the world is blessed because that is what the gospel is about. And the gospel lives in every church body. In 1991, there were a couple of doctors, a surgeon and an anesthesiologist, who were about to begin surgery on a sleeping woman on an operating table in, in Massachusetts. And they, they got everything going. Everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. It all started well, except that it became very obvious to all of the people, the attending nurses, that these two doctors did not like each other very much at all. They did not like each other in, in, in the least. And as the surgery went on, and the anesthesiologist was doing his thing, and the surgeon doing his thing, the people in that room could see that the tension was getting thicker and thicker. And so the anesthesiologist, I mean, they just couldn't, couldn't do the surgery, and they couldn't do it in silence. All of a sudden, the anesthesiologist mutters some kind of a profanity in the direction of the surgeon. And the surgeon hears it while he's operating on this lady, and he doesn't like it. So he picks up a cotton swab, and he flicks it at the anesthesiologist, who then gets mad, and they start having words with one another. The words escalate into shoving one another, and it finally ends. While this woman is being operated on, her wounds are open. These two doctors are in an all-out brawl with one another. I mean, they're slugging each other, uh, they're slugging it out with each other. Well, the, the people inside of the room they are helping them are finally able to pull them apart. They get them calmed down. They continue the operation. It's a success, but word gets out, and both of them are fined $10,000. Now, you know as well as I do that they were very, very fortunate that that surgery did not go south, that that woman was not injured, that that woman was able to come out of that surgery successfully, and that they were able to keep their identity as medical doctors. What I think that Paul is heading towards here is, is an understanding of what the church looks like as it interacts with, with a fallen world. The fallenness of the world is something that is plain to those people in the, the Roman church because Paul has explained they are the recipients of the gospel. They know just how much they've been blessed. 
They know just how much it costs God for them to come into the kingdom. They know exactly what it took in order for their sins to be driven from God as far as the east is from the west. And they are living in the city in the world, the center of the Roman Empire. And Paul is going there and he wants to go on to Spain. But first he wants them to know that he is coming to them and he wants to be with them and he wants to bless them and to be blessed by them and he wants to spend time with them. And he does want them to send him on to Spain. But first, he needs to deal with some things. And what he's dealing with is is a church that potentially is brawling with each other because they're muttering at their, under their breaths at each other. Gentiles are upset with the Jews, and the Jews are upset with the Gentiles, and nobody is living the implication of the Gospel. And what Paul is concerned about, as I think the Christ is concerned in any age, is when a church that is made up in diversity, people having different gifts and people having different tasks and different duties, but all with the mind of Christ and with the attitude of Christ and all being brought together because of the blood of Christ, when they are not getting along and instead fighting with one another over politics or some disputable matter or because there's some immature uh, believer or disciple that has messed up and people want to separate themselves from that, what happens is that the church gets distracted from its mission to be the hands and the feet of God, to be the body of Christ that helps heal the wounds of every person in every culture. And one of the things that Paul is so interested in is in in seeing that church that has the opportunity to be great in that culture and out of that culture to go to the ends of the earth, to see that church come together with all of its diversity, to, to come together with all of its differences, to come together with, with all of its unique backgrounds and, and unique experiences and, and painful experiences and educational experiences and backgrounds and to come together in such a way that it forms the body of Christ in the city of Rome and continues to heal the wounded people, people wounded by sin, by bringing them into contact with the gospel. And people understanding that that gospel is true because they see the miraculous unity and love and super unique fellowship that that church has with itself despite its diversity. Doug's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe there are some ways that our church can minister to you tonight. We're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. If there are ways that our church can pray with you or counsel you or even talk to you about the meaning of the Gospel and how you respond to the Gospel in faith to become a son of God, then we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and as we sing. Jesus will 